There's a bunch of rowdy boys up here this year, and you're the ringleader. <laughs> well, gentlemen, we're going to try to um, try to go from Genesis to Revelation. So it's a modest undertaking. We'll see how far we get. But I want to piggyback on something Kevin said last night. Namely that when you take a look at your Bible, you are looking at a miracle. Because that book is not only the sole source of undiluted truth, it represents at least four miracles. Number one, that God wanted to communicate to us. That's a miracle. And secondly, that he was able to do it in a way that we can understand. Thirdly, that he could speak to ordinary men like us. The prophets, the apostles, ordinary guys, and communicate that message to them and they record it accurately. And the final miracle is that God is able to preserve that book through history so that what you have is an authentic representation of what he said. Now those are miracles. And also, as Kevin pointed out last night, there's only two eternal things. The souls of people and God's word. And the object of the game is to put those two together. And to do that, men, requires that you spend time with guys that can help you to understand and study the book for yourself. But secondly, you need time alone where you make the truths that you're learning your convictions. You live or die by your convictions. You can't live off of somebody else's convictions. And to form biblical convictions takes time alone. And gentlemen, the fact that it's only people in the word that last, just, just think about how important a statement that is. All the great nations of the world are going to be gone. All the fabulous businesses, Amazon, Google, Facebook, even Watershed and Clean Freak. I'm, I'm sorry, boys, but it's best that you know now. So, if your spiritual head is screwed on, you invest with that in mind. Macbeth famously said, life is a tale told by an idiot 
full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well, life is a tale. It is a story. And if you're going to understand that story, you have to understand Genesis to Revelation. That's the story that's being told by life. But the tale is not told by an idiot. It is told by God. Everything is orchestrated by God. Period. Full stop. And that includes the things that you like and the things you don't like. And men, none of us is going to arrive in heaven and regret anything that God did to you. You will not regret that. But you might regret how you responded to it. And you want to avoid that at all costs. So it is a tale, a tale told by God. It is full of sound and fury. And that sound and fury is painful. And that also is of God. Because God links pain and sin. We have exquisite pain receptors. But our receptors for identifying sin, not quite so exquisite. And so God uses pain to draw our attention to the larger problem, which is sin. And it is also not, as Macbeth says, signifying nothing. It signifies something exceedingly important. And that important thing that life signifies, as told by God, is a tale of hope and redemption. The whole of your life is designed by God to redeem you. That you might spend eternity with the lover of your soul. Everything that happens to you, everything is redemptive. Now, gentlemen, as we proceed through this morning and then <clears throat> later this afternoon, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the book of Genesis. And the reason for that is that the foundational principles that are carried out through all the rest of the scripture are found in Genesis. And because the time of Genesis is a simpler time, those, those ideas, those founding principles crystallize more clearly in that book. And that's why we'll spend the bulk of our time in Genesis. So with that preamble, let me pray for us and we'll get into the material. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Thank you for your work on the cross for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for orchestrating all of this.
Lord, we ask that you would superintend our time, that you and you alone would speak, and that you would move our hearts to love and good deeds, to godliness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these men. They are yours. I pray you speak to them. For Christ's sake, amen. In the beginning, God. Those are the opening lines of the Bible. Let me say it again. In the beginning, God. Those are the most important words ever written. Because they signal to us that we're not alone in a pitiless universe. They signal that there's a God out there who cares about his people. He doesn't want to be anonymous. He wants to be known. And gentlemen, to imagine a world without God is to imagine a world without hope. For if there is no God, two things become impossible. The first is purpose. And the second is justice. Now, Solomon makes this same point in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What's he saying? It means nothing. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. And the other thing that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes is life is unfair. That's a command of the obvious, right? You don't have to be an astute observer of life to know that life by any human standard is remarkably, horribly unfair. Gentlemen, I suggest to you that number one, meaning and purpose has to come in from outside the system. If you try to create meaning and purpose on your own, you will find that what you are serving is yourself. You will define what the good life looks like. You may or may not be able to achieve it, but your purpose will all be from within. To have purpose that is of value must come from outside the system. And that outside the system is God himself. And secondly, the unfairness of life Gentlemen, the human race has been debating justice since at least the time of Plato. And we cannot agree what it looks like. And even if we could, how do you execute justice on a global basis? And so the afterlife is a place where the scales are rebalanced. And therefore, hope of justice exists for the follower of Jesus Christ. Now, let me 
pause at this point, ask for questions or comments, and then we'll move on. Yes, sir. Got a mic there, please? Number seven. Uh, the question I have is, uh, well, it's more like a statement. So, meaning and purpose, without God, it's meaningless. Everything is meaningless <clears throat> without God. So we have to have God to have meaning and purpose in life. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you. And gentlemen, that means that if you are not actively seeking that, you're missing the whole point of life. See, purpose on the macro is the same for all of us. It's to be prepared for, to spend an eternity with God. But you, each, each guy in here is different. God made you the way he made you on purpose. You're not an accident. And he has something for you that only you can do. And you've got to figure out what that is. That's what life is about. That ought to be your obsession. And when he starts <clears throat> whispering in your ear what that is, then get about the business of doing it. That's why you're here. Any other thoughts on that? Marty? Number six. Uh, so, I love this, and this is what I'm striving for, and, and I get confused on when I am discerning what God's telling me. And sometimes I think <clears throat> I need to do certain things about situations that are going on around me and I, I worry about worldly things sometimes. So my question is, is, is maybe just probably through scripture, but how do, how do I discern that? Barty, let's talk about that question at the end of the time and see, what you, see where, you, where you are with it at that point. Yes, sir. Finding that purpose, you don't want to be a slave to it. You don't want to be driven in it. You want to be inspired by it. And it's fascinating. The simplest tasks are the ones that you can draw closest to God with. When I'm doing somebody's tax return, oh, my mind's a boggle mess trying to figure things out. <clears throat> But when I'm cleaning the dishes or doing a toilet, it's easy. And I take that time and I talk to God and I say, where are we going, Lord? Because you're working with me. Well, gentlemen, let me remind you of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, wherein Paul goes through a litany of the price that he paid to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it was tough sledding. And let me suggest to you that what your execution of your purpose will cost you is the same thing that it cost Jesus Christ, your life. It's everything. You have to go all in. Again, I can't tell anybody here what that looks like for you, but I can tell you it'll cost you your life. 
Now let me move on uh, from here. It's hard to overstate the importance of Genesis because it sets the stage not just for the rest of scripture, it sets the stage for life itself and is the foundation of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And that worldview is exceedingly important. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But Jesus draws attention to that book, the book of Genesis, in a broad way in John chapter five. Scott Bangert is gonna read for me John chapter five, verses 46 and 47. John chapter 5, 46 through 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You understand what he's saying? Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And included in the Pentateuch is the book of Genesis. And Jesus says, if you believed the Pentateuch, if you believed Genesis you would have believed me. In other words, he links belief in his own words to belief not just in Genesis, but the rest of the Pentateuch. Now that's, a, that's quite a remarkable statement. Evidently, the Pharisees were picking and choosing from among the things that Moses said. And Jesus says that's a fatal mistake. We, in the church today, pick and choose what we believe in the Bible. And that's a fatal mistake. It is either all true or it's a lot of baloney. Let's go study Moby Dick rather than this. Now, I would add to, to Christ's point not only would you believe Jesus, that, that is, not only would you believe the Gospels if you believe Genesis, you would believe what the apostles wrote. Why? Because they stand in Christ's place for you and me. If you want, want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand Jesus Christ, you must understand the epistles. Because without those epistles, the rest of the Bible and particularly the Gospels are an absolute incomprehensible mess that you cannot possibly understand absent the writings of the apostles. Not only so, but Jesus is present from the very beginning in Genesis. I would suggest to you that the Bible is about Jesus Christ. Scott, would you read John 1, the first three verses? <clears throat> John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Do you understand? Jesus is right there from the beginning. He's part of the creative act. Now, if Genesis is as foundational as I'm suggesting, then the seminal event in the book of Genesis is the fall in Genesis chapter 3. The whole of the Bible, the whole of life flow from the fall. Why is life full of sound and fury? Because of the fall. And the fall triggered two events. Number one, it triggered God's plan for redemption, which, is, which are first articulated in the curses later in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. So I'm tipping my hand with respect to the curses. The curses that God issued as a result of the fall were not punitive. Those curses are redemptive because those curses ensured a linkage between pain and sin. And let me suggest to you, absent pain, we all go to hell. And so God, in a gracious act, invents pain and links it to sin. And the second thing that the fall initiated was a great spiritual war. A war between Satan and the angels of his that rebelled. And that war against God himself and the people of God. Now, I suggest to you men that these two things, the fall and this great spiritual war, are the drivers of human history. Doesn't matter if you're aware of it or not. And I raise for your consideration the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we have God laying out what he's going to do over the next few millennia. And he has planned everything. It is all of his. And again, that includes the things you don't like. They are from him. Consider Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Gentlemen, God is your solution and God is your problem. If you have problems in life, your problem is with him. It is only secondarily with somebody else. And you got, you got an adversary who hates you, but God and God alone determines how, much he, how close he can get to you. But the real enemy you face is the guy you see in the mirror. The biggest problem you have in life is the biggest problem I have in life. 
me. Let me pause there. See if we can move on. Questions or comments about any of this? Yeah, Rick. What was that lamentation passage? 337 and 38. We're all good? Yes, sir. So Jesus said, I am the the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, I, I am the word of God. Um, so in other words, God and Jesus, the Father and Jesus are one, but the whole Bible is Jesus being spilled out through the whole eternity. <clears throat> is that correct? Scripture says he died from before the foundation of the world. Again, We'll talk about this momentarily. But I'd suggest to you that God created specifically with Jesus Christ in mind. That is, Jesus was not plan B. He was plan A from the beginning. So he knew, so God knew from the beginning that we were going to fall. Is that correct? That we're going to... Absolutely. Of course he did. Anything else? It's on? Okay. Um, I loved what you said about the uh, second part of the fall. The spiritual war breaks out. I was wondering what your opinion, if you wanted to give it, would be with what's going on right now. If you see that spiritual battle intensifying over the past year, year and a half. Well, brother, I, I, when Ephesians 6.12 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, etc., that is a news flash to me. I would never have known that if the Bible hadn't told me. So my, my personal spiritual perception approaches zero. I don't have awareness of this, but I believe it. And... If, if the body of Christ is right that the return of the Lord is relatively soon, then we can expect an increase of the demonic. Revelation tells us, chapter 9, that people will worship demons. Chapter 13, that they will worship Satan himself, and Antichrist. And my brother, I, I, am, I am no prophet, but from my perspective, the wheels are falling off. And I don't hear anybody saying anything smart about how to fix it. And as followers of Christ, our problem is not our government, it is not COVID, it is none of those things. It's not whoever is in Congress or in the White House. Our problem is with God. And again, I have no license to be right about this, but my perception is that we as a body are an unrepentant and rebellious people. And that God is beating us up to get our attention. If in fact the Lord's return is near, we are not ready. 
And we need to get ready. We need to get our game faces on. I wanted to ask one more question. Do you believe right now that God is separating the goats and the sheep? No. That's an event that happens after he returns. Let's, go, let's move on. Now, gentlemen, there's three facts that you have to grasp. The first is the world starts out innocent. Adam and Eve were innocent. We cannot go back to innocence. Every guy in this room passed that goal a long time ago. None of us are innocent. And so the only choice we have is to move towards righteousness. That's why you're here. You're here to become Christ-like. You cannot go back and God is directing us from that garden to a great city. And in that great city are righteous people. You are here to become one of those people. And so neither individually or collectively can we return to innocence. Secondly, that innocent world has been replaced by an evil world whose prince is Satan. The human race is not in charge of the world. God is in charge of the world, but because of the fall, Satan is his viceroy. And thoughts of taking over the planet and whether, whether it's to win it for Christ, I mean to change everything for Christ or for some other reason, are fool's errands. When Christ says in Luke 18.8, however when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? That's not an optimistic statement about us. Similarly, in Matthew 24.12, because of the increase, lawless, of, increase of lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. Gentlemen, one of the things that you and I have to stand guard on is that our love not grow cold. Every time I look at the internet, every time I pick up a newspaper, I feel in my own soul that grip of moving away from love. That is a move we cannot make. The third thing you have to understand is that men are powerless to do anything about this. Every single problem in life is beyond our ability to solve. That's by design. Because God wants you to turn independence to Him and to realize this isn't your home. You're made for another world. And the expectation on the part of God is that you behave like a citizen of that world, not like a citizen of this one. Now, only God can solve any of these problems, and he will. And the good news is, he has a plan, and his plan is older than the one that Satan devised to scuttle the ship back in Eden. And that plan is one of redemption and to finish the war. 
What does the plan look like? Well, the first, the centerpiece, of course, is Christ's sacrificial death, wherein he pays the penalty that was due us. Gentlemen, one, if, if you cry for justice, recall that if God gives you what you deserve, it's hell for all of us. None of us can afford justice. And so God poured out that justice on Jesus in order that bums like us can spend an eternity with him. Secondly, through Christ, God raises up a people who are miniatures of his son. That's a new class of people that never existed. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if you are if you are about the business that God called you to, what's happening to you is as you die to yourself, holes are punched in your soul. It hurts to die to yourself. It hurts, it costs. But those holes leave room for a Holy Spirit to begin to integrate himself into your soul. That's why you're here. You are a new class of people that never before existed. And the objective of the game is to get as much of the Holy Spirit into your soul as you possibly can. But the pathway is self-denial. Thirdly, God is going to destroy Satan's kingdom. Now that doesn't come until the last book of the Bible. But rest assured, it will be destroyed. And that includes everything on earth. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that everything is a result of man competing with other men. Wow. That's a scary statement. God does not like you to compete with other men. You're to run the race that is yours and yours alone. Because when you compete with another man, you can't love him and serve him at the same time. Now after destroying Satan's kingdom, he'll replace it with the kingdom of Christ, populated again by guys like us who have been transformed. I don't know, that just blows me away. I cannot get my arms around what that will look like. I can't get my arms around what it's going to look like to feel clean. But I long for it. Now men, all of this is a process. The process is called redemption. And it entails war. And you and I are active participants in that war. You may not be warring, but I assure you, war is being waged against you. My admonition is get in the game and recognize the war 
and do the part that God gave you in the fight. Discussion, questions, comments? Yes, sir. What was the uh, Ecclesiastes, the um, scripture that you just referenced? Check me on this. Is it 4-4? Is that right? And then I saw that all toil, uh, toil and all the skill and the work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after a win. This is ESV version. Yeah, that's the verse. What, what version? Um, NASB. Thank you. That's the God-ordained one, in case you didn't know. <laughs> Jared, can you explain hey, a little? Hey, how are you? Can you explain a little bit more uh, when you said uh, it's about getting more of the Holy Spirit in us? Can you explain that a little bit more? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one that'll save it. The cross, when Jesus says, take up your cross, the cross isn't that little trinket that we put around our necks. It's an instrument of death. When he says, take up your cross, he says, die. As Bonhoeffer put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You and I were born for the same reason that Jesus was, to die. But we die pieces at a time if our spiritual heads are screwed on. And when you, a piece of you dies, what John says in, uh, John the Baptist says in John 3.30, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That's how he increases in you, because you've decreased in you. So it has to do a lot with obedience and um, uh, denying yourself, uh, that's how the uh, Holy Spirit increases in our life? Yes. And again, there is no act of obedience that can make you holy and righteous. Impossible. But when you are obedient and you die, that is the signal for the Holy Spirit to do His part. Yes, sir. To reflect on that, whenever I feel the tug, I constantly remind myself, I don't need a bank account, I don't need a home, I don't need a wife, I don't need children, I don't even need food and water, because God has miraculously sustained people in the Bible without it. All I need is Jesus Christ. If I feel any other tug, it's parasitic. And with eternity, it gives me the emotional balance to walk through it. Amen. All right, let me give you an outline. My, my out, is someone else going to say something? 
Okay, this is my outline of Genesis. No, um, no license to be right about it. Let me suggest that the first three chapters, chapters one through three, are about the fall and foundational truths for biblical thinking about redemption and the war. I think that's in your, did I give, give you that? Oh, great, good, then I can go faster. Four through 11 is about the evolution of sin and evil as it relates to redemption in the war. And 12 through 50 are the initial stages of the plan of redemption and winning the war. So with that outline, <clears throat> let's talk about Genesis 1 through 3. Scott, if you would read what I suggested was the seminal event of the book, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, is a record of the fall. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the trees which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So notice that the setup of this is that Satan initiates a conversation. What he has done is he has set the terms of the conversation. Indeed, as God said, in other words, the implication is, you know what, Eve, you naively think he's looking out for you, but he's holding the best stuff back. So he sets the, the terms of the discussion. Gentlemen, that's a warning for us as we engage with the lost about setting the terms of the discussion. When Jesus met Satan and was tempted, Satan again tried to set the terms of the conversation and Jesus never accepted them. He deflected them to the real issues. Secondly, in verses two and three, Eve then modifies what God had said. You shouldn't eat it or touch it. God said nothing about touching. So she modifies the commandment. You think, eh, that's not that big a deal. And then, next, she believes a lie. And by the time you get to verse 6, what you see is the triumph of desire over reason. It is irrational to oppose God, right? She opposed God because of her desire to supplant him, to be like him. Gentlemen, think the same thing happens in us. Sitting here in this room, everybody and his twin brother knows 
that to oppose God is stupid, stupid, stupid. And yet, desire triumphs reason in all of us. And then finally, notice that both of their eyes open after Adam eats. Eve's eyes do not open when she eats. They open when her husband eats. And men, that is signaling something very important to us about the headship of men. And it is no accident that the headship of men is one of the focal points of this ridiculous culture we've produced for ourselves. Marginalizing men and destroying the nuclear family are at the center of it because of this. Now, the tree then, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, becomes the prototype of all idolatry. And idolatry is driven by knowledge contrary to the truth of God. In some ways, idolatry is a knowledge-generating factory. It is a way for you to get what you know God doesn't want you to have. And so we invent various idols. And again, once the lie of the idol is embraced, desire kicks in. And gentlemen, if you doubt the strength of desire versus reason, let me offer two thoughts for you. Number one, close your eyes and think about what you need. And then close your eyes and think about what you want. What presents itself more forcefully to your consciousness? Second observation is King Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man who ever existed. And yet, at the end of his life, in 1 Kings 11, he is in idolatry to every single pagan idol in the land. Why? The text tells us because his wives, all 1,000 of them, turned his heart. Smartest guy in the world, overcome by desire. We're all exceedingly susceptible. It doesn't matter how smart you are. And the reason I bring up idolatry is to suggest, and we'll talk about this more as we get through this, that idolatry has plagued the people of God from the very beginning up to our time. Adam and Eve's desire for autonomy, to be like God, was their vulnerability. It's your vulnerability. It's my vulnerability. And they begin to reason about the injustice of the commandment. And the lie awakened their desire to break it. Let me give you an illustration of that in my own ridiculous life. When I was in college, 
sexual revolution was in full swing. Willing women were everywhere. It was a brand new phenomenon. It wasn't that there were other, hadn't been willing women, women before, but they were everywhere. And because I wanted to join in the fun, but I also was a follower of Christ, I started to reason about it. See, my, my desire was to join the fun. And I reasoned. And my reasoning went like this. You know, God, in issuing the commandment about fornicating and immorality, that was for a different time. And the reason it's for a different time is because God's objective was to, number one, prevent pregnancy out of wedlock, and number two, to prevent STDs. That's my brilliant 18-year-old mind. Now, I wasn't able to act on it. I never acted on it because of two things. Number one, I was really afraid of God. Number two, I just couldn't get a date. But gentlemen, let me suggest those reasonings are the reasoning of a fool. And it wasn't until I became an adult and read the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, to learn the uniqueness of immoral immorality, of sexual immorality. That it is a unique sin against your resurrected body. Paul says no other sin impacts your resurrected body except that one. And I say to myself, God, it's really better to be lucky than good. I reasoned stupidly and you protected me. Why is it a sin against your body? Paul doesn't explain. But let me suggest to you that in part, it is probably related to the fact that sex is, in the final analysis, more about souls than it is about bodies. We get wrapped up in the body part of it. But there is an intertwining of souls in sexuality, in in intercourse, that the pagans knew far better than we do. That's why they had cultic prostitutes. That's why there were prostitutes at the idols' temples. You'd go make your offering, and then you'd go have sex with the prostitute. Why? Because they believed that in doing that, they were gaining union with the God through the body of the prostitute. Sex is a soul event. And it impacts It's reflected in your resurrected body. First Corinthians six, it goes, if you look, I think that part starts around nine, is it? Thank you. Through through the end of the book, through, through the end of the chapter. If, if you're looking for loopholes, they're not there. (laughs) 
Now, men, I'd like to suggest to you at this point that the purpose of life is redemption. Again, when God created, Jesus Christ was fully in mind, front and center. He was not an afterthought. God created knowing that what he wanted to do was to put on display his son. Let me give you a reference for that. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Scott, if you'd read that. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God wanted the world, including the angels, to see his son. And men, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on my horse and I'm gonna gallop now. Um, we're, we're gonna run out of time if I don't get us a little further into this stuff. So I'm gonna ask you to hold off your questions uh, at least for a little bit until I can uh, saw a few more logs. The reason I believe Christ and redemption are the reason God made us has to do with a number of factors. One of those factors is the peculiar way that he made us. Think about what a human being is. You are a immortal soul housed in a mortal body. What a weird way to make somebody. In other words, he ensures that you're gonna die because you've got a mortal body, but he ensures that you will live on because you have an immortal soul. The angels are not like that. And for that reason, they're irredeemable. One slip up and it's game over. But for us, we can be redeemed because of that fact. Secondly, what is required, oh, I think I'm gonna lose this. Yeah, boy. What is required for redemption is not necessarily your death. And I cite as evidence of that, the rapture. At the rapture, alive people go meet Jesus in the clouds. Who had, the one who had to die was Christ. And this is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, goes to such length to describe why Jesus had to be made just like us. And it has to do with this redemption. In other words, Jesus had to have a mortal body and an immortal soul. I hope that's clear. If it isn't, we'll come back and we can talk, uh, talk some more about it. The second reason why I think redemption is the name of the game is because God stacked the deck against himself. Here's Adam and Eve, these two innocents, and he lets a snake in there. 
He lets Satan in there. As though the, the outcome wasn't predictable. Of course it was predictable. He did it on purpose. He stacked the deck against himself so that the fall would happen sooner rather than later because if they had had children, the plan of redemption would have gotten increasingly more difficult. But with just two, he could start it off in the way he wanted to start it off. The second or the third reason I think it's redemption is Scott, read Genesis 6, 6 through 7. This is 6, 6 through 7. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I may have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Come on, put yourself in the place of God. You can do whatever you want. Whatever you want. Why would you put yourself through that kind of misery and pain? I'm deeply sorry. I regret. This is God talking. He's in pain. Why would he do that? And I suggest the answer is in Luke 15, 7. Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Gentlemen, there's nothing in my experience that would have told me that was so. Everything in me says it ought to be the 99. But that's not how God's wired. God loves redemption. He never tires of redemption. Now, gentlemen, that astonishing fact ought to bring you to your knees. God loves redemption. He loves to take bums and make godly people out of them. He loves it. That's why you were made. Furthermore, everything that God does in your life is redemptive. It's important to keep three things in mind about redemption in this regard, that everything is redemptive. Number one, we've already alluded to this, but those curses that God issues in Genesis 3, 14 to 19, are not punitive. God did not introduce pain into the world to make your life miserable. Or more accurately, he did induce pain to make your life miserable, to wake you from your dogmatic slumbers, that all is not well, that you have a bigger problem than pain. And the problem is sin. So, those curses of the weeds in, your market, in the marketplace, what your wife goes through with you and the kids, that's redemptive. It's not punitive. And we have to know how to respond to those things and understand 
that it's redemptive. Now, I just remind you of Hebrews 12, 10 through 11. It talks, and we won't go there now, but it talks about God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. When he hurts you, they're the wounds of a friend. Finally, redemption includes both justification and sanctification. When you say yes to Jesus, that's not the end, that's the beginning. The expectation on the part of God is that you move, that you allow him to change you. And gentlemen, for you, per Kevin's talk with with family, there's a great gift that you can give your family, and that is to watch you change. Because it, it gives them hope. If the old man can change, Anybody can. It's important that they see it. Now let me try to, try to wrap up redemption. That we learn things about God through redemption that would be difficult or impossible otherwise. Number one, we learn about the sacrificial nature of love. Without the cross, what does it cost God to love us? Zip. But with the cross, it cost him the life of his son Jesus. And let me suggest that our love, like God's, must also be sacrificial. The second thing that we learn is the humility of God. Again, men, Think of the composition of the body of Christ. Paul makes the observation in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, take a look around. There aren't, the smart guys aren't here. The powerful guys aren't here. It's the bums. It's the dregs of society. God loves those guys. God loves the dregs because Christianity is not only a religion of rescue, it's a religion for the desperate. The more desperate you are, the better Jesus Christ looks. And the third thing you see is the worth of the individual. How could we have known without Christ dying for individuals that we mattered so much to him. And again, men, in this, God has skin in the game. He's got big skin in the game. His love is not a distant, pious love. It's a get down and dirty love where he enters into our world and into our pain and into our sin. just make an observation about that with respect to the modern secular religion that we've created. In our new secular religion, if you make one mistake, 
If you say one wrong thing, you're toast, right? The zealous Puritans are ready to abandon you, leave you in the gutter, pretend they never knew you. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. There's no hope. Only scorn and derision and hatred. It's a religion of hatred, lies, revenge, and hypocrisy. A gentlemen, to some extent, we're all hypocrites. But if you enter into that religion, that secular religion, I remind you of the lesson that the West has to relearn again and again and again, and it's the lesson of the French Revolution. In the French Revolution, a guy by the name of Robespierre was the architect of all those who got guillotined. He was responsible for thousands upon thousands of people guillotined. But at the end of the revolution, Robespierre himself was guillotined. And the lesson is, nobody's pure enough. Nobody is ever pure enough. It was true in the French Revolution, and it is true today. Nobody is pure enough, and eventually they come looking for you all. All of us get guillotined. I'm going to move on to a second problem, and that's the problem of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The problem of knowledge. Knowledge is a problem, men. How is it that the contents of your mind got in there, and how do you know if they're true or false? So knowledge is a gigantic problem. And let me suggest to you that all knowledge is presuppositional. That's a 25 cent word and what I mean is this. All of your knowledge is based on something you can't prove. Is there God? What happens to me after I die? What is true? What is morality supposed to look like? The way you answer those questions, believer and unbeliever alike, they're all, all those questions are all answered by faith. And those presuppositions are so important because if your presuppositions are wrong, let's take for example, if my presupposition is that there is no God, it does not matter, and, and there is a God, if my reasoning is based on my belief that he doesn't exist, it doesn't matter how good a logician I am, how brilliant a thinker I am, I will, it will never, ever lead me to the truth. Your presuppositions matter, and it's more important to have the right presuppositions than to be able to reason from them. Now, reasoning from them is important, but you've got to get the presuppositions first. And remember, men, Christ says of himself, I'm the beginning and I am the end. He and he alone knows everything. All 
the treasures and riches of wisdom and knowledge dwell in him. All knowledge, all wisdom, all truth is his. And the Bible is the only source of undiluted truth to which we have access. Am I getting close, Trevor? Blah, 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 blah. There's a second knowledge problem. The first one is that it's presuppositional. The second one is to treat knowledge as an end in itself. From knowing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you might think that knowledge is an end in itself. It is not. The greater issue is not knowledge. The greater issue is relationship. If the relationship between Adam and Eve had been right with God, the fall would have never taken place. I suggest to you that relationship is the issue, not knowledge. Knowledge is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end, to the end of having a a loving relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. And when we treat knowledge as an end in itself, it leads to sin, it leads to error, it leads to pride, and it leads to presumption. Knowledge is not an end in itself. I think, am I done? Am I my time up? All right, there's the third knowledge problem that I'm going to hold off on. So, let's see where we are. Yeah, we'll be okay. We just won't have a lot of questions until the end. You guys, thank you very much.